Their names are a byword for romance on the run, a fairy tale story of star-crossed outlaws who will ride together and die together. Bonnie and Clyde are American legends, a wild couple who outgun and outpace the cops. For a few short years, they capture public imagination with their high-octane life of crime that stops only for gas and ammo. Forged in the intense heat of the dusty Midwest and the Great Depression, molded by a brutal prison system, their car-crazy machine-gun crime spree can only ever end one way. But what's the truth behind their glamorous image? How did they become notorious celebrities in their own lifetime? This is Bonnie and Clyde, part two, Ride or Die. It's early evening on April the 13th, 1933, in Joplin, Missouri. Bonnie Parker is sitting on the living room floor of their small apartment. She chews on a pen and leans over her notebook, rereading the poems she's been working on over the last couple of weeks while holed up inside. In the garage below, Buck Barrow, Clyde's older brother, bangs around preparing his car. His wife, Blanche, bustles around, packing for their departure. They're going straight, splitting back to Dallas tomorrow while Bonnie, Clyde, and their young accomplice, W.D. Jones, head north. Bonnie is about to start packing her own things when a familiar rumble comes from outside. A car pulls into the garage. Voices drift up. Clyde and W.D. have returned from casing local stores to rob for traveling cash. She hears the garage doors scrape closed. Her eyes flick to the door, anxious for her beloved to appear. Instead, there's another sound outside, all too familiar. The sudden, unmistakable crack of a gunshot deafening the suburban street. Bonnie is already sprinting to the window when another shot rings out. Then another. With a glance out of the window, she can see all hell breaking loose on the street below. A patrol car is blocking the garage. A second has pulled up across the street. Bonnie throws open the window. Grabbing a machine gun propped against the wall, oversized in her small arms, she leans out, squinting along the barrel. A squeeze of the trigger lets loose a torrent of hot lead down onto the street. She swings the rifle around, narrowly missing a cop as he dives behind a tree. She keeps her finger on the trigger. Bullets shred the bark and send splinters flying through the air. Urgent shouts come from the garage below. In the room behind her, Blanche sprints for the stairs. Bonnie grabs a spare magazine to reload. Down on the driveway, she watches Clyde dragging the body of a dead cop away from the garage doors, leaving dark streaks across the concrete. A head pops up from behind a car. Bonnie slams the fresh magazine home, cocks the rifle, and squeezes the trigger again. The head disappears back down. Buck runs out and tries to push the cop car onto the road, but gunfire forces him back. Bonnie scans the road again, squeezing the trigger one last time. 
Glass shatters. Chips of sidewalk spray the air. Down in the garage, Clyde is shouting her name. She drops the rifle, running for the door. Down the stairs and into the garage, she jumps straight into the passenger seat of the idling Ford. Buck fires a pistol out the window as Clyde nails the gas. The Ford shoots forward out of the garage. Metal screeches as the cop car is rammed backwards. Clyde presses the pedal again. The bumper tears off as he shunts the cop car out of the way and pushes past. In a screech of tire smoke, the gang are gone. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. Last time on Real Outlaws, Bonnie and Clyde took their first fateful steps into a life on the run. Petty crime might have been the sum of it, but a brutal stint in prison changed Clyde forever. He vows never to go back to prison which fosters a shoot-first attitude, resulting in numerous dead police officers and a growing infamy as a cold-blooded killer. But only just getting started. Their crime spree across the Dusty Depression-era Midwest is about to really kick into gear. In the wake of the Joplin apartment shootout, the unexpectedly vicious response of the gang shocks the police and public alike. When the gun smoke clears, the stunned officers enter the apartment in Joplin. What they find both terrifies and astounds them. Paul Schneider is a journalist and author of Bonnie and Clyde, The Lives Behind the Legend. Joplin's one of the only places where the actual building, the actual place, the whole scene of the crime is still there. This is really the first epic shootout, and this is where all these Browning automatic rifles come into play, and it's absurd how much firepower they bring to it. The police find an arsenal of military weaponry and thousands of rounds of ammunition. Personal belongings have been abandoned in the gang's haste, some more personal than others. Buck has left behind his prison parole papers and his marriage license from his wedding to Blanche two years previously. Blanche is distraught. A positive identification and two dead officers mean their plans of going straight are irrevocably dashed. Buck and Blanche can no longer think about turning back. So now Blanche and Buck are full-on part of the gang for the rest of the ride. Bonnie's discarded possessions are the most personal. Jewelry and clothes, but, importantly, a journal full of her poetry. Bonnie's writing offers a profound insight into the outlaws' lives and mental state, but the police find something else almost as revealing. Left behind is this camera that Clyde had bought for Bonnie that has pictures in it. And these are the iconic pictures that anybody who has looked into Bonnie and Clyde, you know, has seen. 
The police quickly send the images to news outlets across America. Soon, these are printed alongside Bonnie's poetry, propelling the couple into homes across America and cementing their legend. The police and news outlets intend to shock the public and turn opinion against them. But instead, the opposite happens. These pictures get out to the press and they really raise the sort of level, the profile of Bonnie and Clyde and give them a sort of a kind of glamour that they didn't have before. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. The gang appears in a series of poses against a backdrop of stolen cars and guns. In one famous picture, Bonnie holds a shotgun on Clyde while she reaches for his gun, a lighthearted demonstration of a stick-up. In another, Clyde holds Bonnie up in an embrace, hat in hand. These images will come to characterize the outlaw couple as playful and carefree, laughing all the way to hell. They quickly become a media sensation. This is the era of the public enemy, a phrase popularized by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI to denounce high-profile criminals, of which there are a growing number. As Bonnie and Clyde are tearing around the Midwest, so too are John Dillinger and Babyface Nelson, sticking up banks and escaping the law. The FBI may have deemed them public enemies, but to many members of the public, the real enemies are the federal government, the banks, and big businesses, and the outlaws represent an anti-establishment rebellion. They are a product of a certain time in American history when it really felt, I think, to dispossessed people like nobody was looking out for them. That the law was there to take their homes away and the law was there to enforce the bankruptcies and the law was there to keep the powerful in power. And so they have no respect for it. And the outlaws of the era foster this social bandit-style image, robbing from the corrupt, wealthy elites at a time when many ordinary Americans have lost hope. There is a kind of underlying rumor of a kind of Robin Hood element of Bonnie and Clyde. They certainly did flow money to the people who were part of their protection, who they could trust in Dallas. I think they certainly gave money to their family members. You know, they didn't go distribute it to the down and out in any kind of organized way. But I don't think there's any real evidence of them, you know, giving money to the poor just to be nice. 
But not only do Bonnie and Clyde keep their ill-gotten gains for themselves, their targets regularly include small shops, gas stations, and hardware stores. They also kill a number of innocent working-class citizens in the process. Outlaw folk heroes rebelling against the system. It's a powerful narrative, but one that comes up short. In the public enemy era, criminals and their sensationalized exploits are ten a penny. But Bonnie and Clyde do have something these other colorful criminals do not. They have each other. In spite of their crimes, the sex appeal of a desperate young unmarried couple on the run wins over the population. Newspaper editors had originally sought to disgust the public, but now find that sex sells better. The most famous image is of Bonnie clad in a black dress, one foot suggestively resting on the bumper of their Ford V8 while she leans on the headlamp. The other hand rests on her hip, clasped around the handle of a revolver. A cigar is clamped between her teeth as she scowls into the camera. When you know Bonnie never smoked cigars, you see the picture for what it is, a playful pose poking fun at the popular depictions of gangsters. But the four-foot-eleven woman in the tight dress and cardigan with a beret pushed back on her head instantly becomes a pinup for many across the country. The laughing couple in the photographs are the Bonnie and Clyde the public take to their hearts. They don't want to see the true details of their crimes, the bodies or the blood. But alongside the photos, Bonnie's poetry also reveals the troubled thoughts of a woman caught up in a violent world. It seems even now, a sense of foreboding is growing. The road was so dimly lighted, there were no highway signs to guide. But they made up their minds, if all roads were blind, they wouldn't give up till they died. The gang spend the spring of 1933 moving from place to place. Rolling into town in a hot car with fancy clothes, keeping a low profile is tough. At first, Bonnie enjoys the excitement, signing autographs for the kids who run up to the car. But after a few months speeding everywhere from Texas to Minnesota, they find their newfound infamy can be a curse. They're too wanted and too recognizable to check into these hotels, and they're literally like sleeping in woods, sleeping in their cars. It may be a romantic image, but the reality takes a heavy toll. Exhausted, dirty, and resentful, they begin to break. By the end of May, Buck and Blanche decide to go it alone for a couple of weeks, agreeing to meet up again soon. W.D. Jones opts to stick with Bonnie and Clyde for the time being. There's stories that Clyde became very attached to having him in the car and even tied at some point, you know, used to tie a, a shoestring between him and W.D. to make sure he woke up when W.D. woke up. So you get the feeling that Clyde maybe was worried that W.D. was going to split on them. A couple of weeks later in Louisiana, 
A 30-year-old man named Darby is having lunch when his brand-new Ford V8 is stolen outside. Darby approaches the car robbers, a dangerous thing to do. But on discovering he is an undertaker by trade, the would-be victim becomes the object of gallows humor for the outlaws. Darby is this undertaker who gets mixed up when they're trying to steal his car and gets in. And it shows Bonnie's wit. It's a kind of cute story that Darby probably told the rest of his life, you know, how he was taken for a ride by Bonnie and Clyde. And Bonnie said, you know, you might be working on my body someday. So they had a sense of humor, for sure, a morbid sense of humor. I wouldn't want to be in the car with them to hear those jokes in person, however. Clyde loves the new Ford Model 18, fitted with the much-exalted flathead V8 engine, and steals them whenever he can. He even writes a letter to Henry Ford proclaiming it to be a dandy car, which he steals exclusively for its sustained speed and freedom from trouble. He never went slower than full speed, and he practiced maneuvers of the sort that you see in cops and robber type shows that are not something anybody can do without practice, such as, you know, flying in reverse, slamming on the brakes, going into second and spinning around and taking off at full speed. So these local cops who try to stop them at the beginning, you know, are, are puttering around in Grandpa's Model T, you know, with a handgun, a service gun, and they don't really have a chance. To escape the police, Clyde thinks nothing of driving hundreds of miles to cross state lines. They loved to be in a place where you could get in the car, you got 100 more horsepower than the cops, and you can cross the state lines, and, and they've got to stop at a grocery store and ask for a phone to call ahead. They can't just radio and say, hey, you know, we're on the trail. So Bonnie and Clyde had advantages that no criminal today would have against the law. So far, Clyde's skill behind the wheel has kept them one step ahead of the cops. But luck has also played a part. Now, on June 10th, 1933, near Wellington, Texas, it seems both suddenly desert them. It shows how tightly wound they are, and, and it's also n another one of these extraordinary how are they going to get out of this one stories. Clyde was a famous driver, practiced all his driving skills, and, you know, could do all these fantastic moves, maneuvers with his cars. But this was a bridge that was being rebuilt, and he missed the sign for the detour and ended up going where he thought the bridge was and ended up missing the bridge. And it was a horrible, it was a horrible accident. The car comes to rest in the dry riverbed. Smoke curls from under the bonnet and steam wisps from the smashed radiator. A local farmer and his family rush to find Clyde and W.D. dragging themselves from the car. Together, they help the unconscious Bonnie to the farmhouse, and it's immediately apparent she's suffered a terrible injury. The battery under the floor of the car had ruptured on impact, spraying acid across Bonnie's leg. She has horrific burns, down to the bone. Only the quick thinking of the farmer's wife saves her leg, the rapid application of baking soda to neutralize the acid. With no electricity and no phone in the farmstead, one of the family members goes into town to fetch a doctor. As a precaution, while they wait for the doctor, WD retrieves their weaponry from the crashed car. 
Clyde and WD don't think they've been recognized. But they're wrong. Clearly, everybody's on edge. Everybody's, you know, jumpy. They've just gotten out of a horrible crash, uh, one of them badly wounded, and WD is trigger happy and thinks he sees this farmer's wife is, you know, getting a gun or is a member of the law, and he fires. Luckily, the gunshot only injures her hand and misses the baby she's carrying. But it also shows the grim reality of being held up by the desperate outlaws. As a car approaches, Clyde suspects they've been double-crossed. He and WD hide out back, and it doesn't take long for him to be proved right. Two lawmen make their way inside, oblivious to the danger. Clyde and WD pounce, handcuffing the officers and bundling them back into their car at gunpoint. Carrying a screaming Bonnie into the police car, they make their getaway once again. They rendezvous with Buck and Blanche in the middle of nowhere, tying the cops to a tree before disappearing into the darkness. It may not have ended with the bloodshed of previous encounters, but the incident has a profound effect on Bonnie. Her injuries are grave. WD later claims he thought she might die. Now, as well as gas and food, they need regular medical supplies. Clyde drives eight hours nonstop to West Dallas to collect Bonnie's younger sister, Billy, to help care for her. By early July, the gang know they need to rest up somewhere safe to give Bonnie a chance to recover. In order to do that, they need money, and they need to restock their mobile armory. The guns are first. The gang break into the National Guard armory at Enid, Oklahoma. They steal so many weapons, they can hardly fit them all in the car. Well, it is astonishing today to think how simple it was for them to break into armories and walk away with, you know, enough 10, 15, 20 Browning automatic rifles and however much ammunition they could fit in their car. And they did this more than once. You can't underestimate how decentralized government was in that part of the, in all of the United States at that time, you know, and how still pretty rudimentary compared to today, surveillance and communication for law enforcement was. So the armories were there for the taking and, and Clyde and his gang would go get them. Clyde's weapon of choice is the BAR, or Browning Automatic Rifle. It's a machine gun with a devastating rate of fire that can lay down more firepower than a whole paddy wagon full of cops. They were military-grade automatic rifles. And, he, you know, he was up against rinky-dink police forces that in most cases were local police. The local constable, he might have like a some kind of old six-gun pistol, you know, or maybe a rifle, maybe a shotgun, but nothing like these Brownings that could just blow right through an armored car or right through a door. Next, they go on a rampage in Fort Dodge, Iowa, hitting three gas stations in a row in under 20 minutes. With the weapons and the cash to keep them safely holed up, Clyde puts distance between the gang and their latest crimes. 
250 miles later, they check into the Red Lion Tourist Court in Missouri. They take the only accommodation, two rooms with adjoining garages in between. With the car safely hidden and themselves safe behind sturdy brick walls, it's the perfect spot to recuperate. Or it would be if the restaurant across the street wasn't a favorite watering hole of highway patrol officers. By the time they get to the Red Crown Motel, I think tensions are pretty high. And Blanche keeps going across the street to get food and drinks and bring it back. And naturally, this starts to arouse some suspicion that there's people who never come out and, you know, one woman who keeps bringing food in. And so the police ultimately get wind of it and bring a lot of firepower. July 20th, 1933. It's a hot, muggy night in Platt County, Missouri. There's almost no moon, and the darkness is heavy with insects and animal calls. Slim's Castle, a gas station and restaurant on the corner of an intersection, is busier than usual for the late hour. It's approaching midnight, and a crowd has started to gather in the parking lot. Word is out that the celebrity outlaws Bonnie and Clyde are in town. Cops warn the crowd back as Holt Coffey, the sheriff, stares intently across the road at the Red Crown Tourist Court. A faint light escapes around the edges of the newspapers Clyde has stuck up covering the windows. So far, there's no indication the occupants are aware of the force gathering outside. Sheriff Coffey checks his watch and nods to a colleague. Hushed commands are given. An engine starts up. From round the corner, an armored car rolls past across the street. Coffey and several officers pick up their heavy steel bulletproof shields and, like a group of medieval knights, begin walking slowly forward. Through the small slit in the shield, the sheriff's eyes stay glued to the door of the motel as he advances. The armored car rolls to a stop, blocking the garage doors to prevent an escape. Coffey cocks his Thompson submachine gun and glances round at his men, grim determination on his face. This is a first for Bonnie and Clyde, a fair fight. Sheriff Coffey stops outside one of the doors, rests his shield on the ground, and raps on the wood sharply. A woman calls out that she's not dressed. Coffey replies that he's the law and she better get her trousers on. He then asks where the men are. This time, the woman's reply is louder. She shouts that they're in the other cabin. Coffey doesn't know he's talking to Blanche, who is purposely shouting loudly to warn the others. There's a sudden eruption of sound. Bullets, glass, and wood splinters explode in all directions. The unmistakable clatter of several BARs opening up at once. Orange flashes erupt from the windows of the cabins as a torrent of lead pours out. Sheriff Coffey grips his shield tight, bracing himself against the storm of 30 caliber bullets pummeling the thick steel plate. 
The police are physically forced back by the onslaught, shuffling across the parking lot as if being pushed by a fire hose. They return fire with their own machine guns, but the measly slugs of the Thompsons are no match. Flying glass and wood slices the officers, bullets ricochet in all directions. Cops dive for cover, firing back at the gang. Heads appear at the shattered windows. The gang are reloading and firing faster than the officers can keep up. They turn their guns onto the armored car, and Sheriff Coffey can only watch in horror as the armor-piercing rounds slice clean through the steel. There's a scream as the driver is hit, drowned out by the sound of the horn blasting relentlessly. The police assume the horn is a ceasefire signal, and most fall back. Coffey struggles to shout commands over the unending wail and the barrage of gunfire. The injured driver attempts to flee, gunning the engine and backing away to save his skin. Sheriff Coffey signals to the armored car, telling him to move back into position. But it's too late. The gang's Ford V8 leaps through the garage doors, smashing the wood to matchsticks. Buck and Blanche run from their door, and the police fire. One of the bullets finds its mark. Buck's BAR goes wild, spraying bullets into the air as he stumbles. He is dragged into the car. The Ford's windows shatter as the cops continue to blast the getaway car, but it's too late. In a roar of exhaust and a hail of bullets, once again, the Barrow Gang escapes the law. Four days after the ferocious gun battle, the outlaws are camping rough in an abandoned amusement park outside Dexter, Iowa. They've pulled the cars into a remote clearing near a river to lick their wounds. Their astonishing escape came at a huge cost. Buck has been shot in the head. By some miracle, he's still alive, though it's not looking good. Clyde and WD have already dug him a grave. He might be talking and eating, but the bullet blasted away the front of his skull, leaving his brain exposed. Since the shootout, Clyde has been pouring neat peroxide onto his brother's brain to keep infection at bay. Blanche is partially blind. Fragments of glass from the car windows are still embedded in her eyes. Bonnie's leg wounds have reopened and infection has taken hold. She can hardly walk. The group are in dire straits, and their respite is brief. Unknown to them, Locals have alerted the sheriff to a group camping in the woods. Now, as they eat their breakfast, a posse of over 50 armed men is encircling them. A shout for raised hands goes ignored as Clyde dives for his gun. A vicious gunfight ensues, with both cars destroyed in another hailstorm of bullets. The gang scatter. Clyde drops the heavy BAR and makes for the river, with W.D. half-carrying Bonnie after him. 
Screams erupt from the other side of the woods. Buck has been shot and Blanche captured. Tragic as it is, it's the distraction the trio need to make their escape. And while Clyde steals a car from a nearby farm, W.D. carries Bonnie over the river to safety. The posse find Blanche behind a log, cradling a stomach wound. Buck is nearby, six gunshot wounds in his back, but somehow still alive. The two are taken to hospital where, despite Buck chatting with doctors, they also don't expect him to live much longer. When asked, where are you wanted by the law? Buck replies, everywhere I've been. Buck Barrow dies a few days later. His body is taken back to Dallas for burial. But Kimmy Barrow delays buying a headstone for her son. No sense paying twice when she suspects Buck's brother Clyde won't be far behind. Blanche loses the sight in one eye, and during questioning, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover is alleged to have threatened to gouge her remaining good eye out. Meanwhile, the gang are back down to three, and Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. Jones are increasingly desperate. They range further afield than their usual stalking grounds. From Colorado to Minnesota, they rob cars and cash. In late August 1933, Clyde and W.D. hit an armory again, this time in Platteville, Illinois. They take three BAR machine guns, several handguns, and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. But it doesn't matter how many guns they have. They know they can't fight the inevitable. The clock is running down. As the story of Bonnie and Clyde approaches the final act, the balance of public opinion finally starts to tip, and the outlaws are increasingly seen for what they really are. I think that once Buck dies or is captured, that's another round of photographs. There's famous photograph of Blanche, Buck's on the ground, and Blanche is caught. So that puts them in the news again. But I think also it for Bonnie and Clyde and their parents and their siblings, I think it was so a kind of a forewarning that the end is inevitable. The end was always going to be inevitable. They were going to go down together. But the fact that Buck is dead and Blanche is in jail, I think people were surprised how much longer Bonnie and Clyde carried on. W.D. Jones has no desire to follow the couple to the end of the road. He bides his time, helping Clyde rob and steal and picking up supplies for Bonnie, until finally her leg is healed. She is stuck with a terrible limp and is in constant pain, but she can support herself. W.D. has done his duty to his friends, but he's had enough. Clyde told him to go steal another car, and he went and stole the car and didn't bring it back. He went and stole the car and took off on them. W.D. Jones returns to his mother in Houston. He keeps a low profile, working farms to support himself. But finally, in November, he is discovered and arrested. But I don't think that Clyde or Bonnie, at that point, 
would have held it much against him to tell whatever story he could to help himself. Because I think they did know at that point that there was no other conclusion than, than what was coming. And WD's testimony is, you know, oh, I was I was drunk when that happened. Oh, I was asleep when, when they killed that cop. You know, uh, oh, I, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I was asleep. His testimony delivers a murder indictment against Bonnie and Clyde, the first for Bonnie. Clyde's older brother is dead. They really are living out of their car. They're all shot up. There's an amazing scene of them. I think WD tells it maybe in that testimony. You know, they have nothing to wear, but like they put sheets over their heads so that they can go to gas stations and people won't see, you know, they're dressed like ghosts, but they didn't want people to see how shot up and chewed up they were. Now the couple are alone again, and they know time is running out. It's November 22nd, 1933. Eleven miles northwest of Dallas, a rural highway crossroads lies in darkness. The crescent of a moon drifts in and out of clouds above the dry fields and thin trees. It's a quiet night broken only by the calls of nocturnal animals. As a cloud rolls away, the moonlight reflects off a dark car pulled up at the side of the road. Billy Parker Moon, Bonnie's younger sister, sits in the passenger seat, staring intently into the blackness. A family friend sits behind the wheel, her mother in the back seat. All three breathe quietly, straining their eyes and ears. Then they hear it, the familiar rumble of a Ford V8. It appears, shrouded in darkness, rolling slowly towards them. The Ford stops, flashing its headlights in a prearranged signal. A light flashes back from somewhere behind Billy's car. Clyde's mother, younger brother, and sister have also driven out in another car. Last night, They'd all come out here to meet Bonnie and Clyde to celebrate Kimmy Barrow's 59th birthday with a nighttime picnic. Unfortunately, Clyde had forgotten his mother's gift, so they've returned tonight for a second secret meeting. The Ford, reassured by the light signal, rolls towards them. Bonnie and Clyde are illuminated in the glow of headlights from Billy's car. As the Ford squeaks to a stop, Clyde grins, despite his nervousness. They never usually meet in the same place twice, but tonight is an exception. He's right to be nervous, as one of the party has informed the sheriff. Sat in her own car, Billy Parker notices a red flash from a ditch 20 meters or so away. The firecracker pop reaches them as more flickers of light erupt. A bullet ricochets off Clyde's car. Billy realizes these are no fireworks. Machine guns blast from the ditch. Billy realizes their headlights are painting a target on Bonnie and Clyde. She reaches over and flicks off the lights. As her eyes adjust, she sees the ditch is filled with law officers waiting in ambush, running in all directions, blasting at the car. The gunfire is deafening. Bullets kick up stones and dust. 
Clyde speeds away in a squeal of tires and a storm of gravel. Soon, the car is lost to the darkness, leaving the law officers empty-handed once again. The failed ambush is the closest the law has ever come to catching or killing Bonnie and Clyde. Even so, when the newspapers report the ambush, the headlines poke fun at Dallas police. The newsboys even holler, Sheriff escapes from Clyde Barrow. One wonders if the press are even a little disappointed at the lack of bodies and bloodshed on this occasion, as another one of Bonnie's verses cynically supposes. A newsboy once said to his buddy, I wish old Clyde would get jumped. In these awful hard times, we'd make a few dimes if five or six cops would get bumped. Although they're in the wind once more, each escape takes more from the couple. This time, bullets have penetrated the car and passed clean through both Bonnie and Clyde's legs. Clyde has been hit two or three times, and Bonnie has a bullet lodged in her knee. They drive to an old well where Clyde cleans their wounds before they both pass out. They almost bleed to death, but manage to make it to the home of the brother of another notorious outlaw, Pretty Boy Floyd. Here, they find temporary sanctuary, binding the wounds and being tended to until they recover. It's getting desperate with Clyde, and, um, and, and it's getting desperate with Bonnie, of course, as well. But with Buck dead and Blanche captured, there's also a sense, this sense of that death is inevitably coming for Bonnie and Clyde, I think, creeps into their own consciousness if it hasn't been there already. And in Clyde's case, he gets back onto his idea hatched back when he was in the Eastham prison farm of springing a bunch of people from that farm and getting some revenge. Next time on Real Outlaws, Bonnie and Clyde hurtle towards their bloody destiny as they finally put their prison break plan into action, seeking vengeance on the system that shaped them. But actions have consequences, and the law has had enough of the elusive outlaws. Things heat up when legendary Texas manhunter Frank Hamer is set on their trail. But what's the truth behind their dramatic final ride? And how does their legend take flight? Find out next time on Real Outlaws.